He was one of the key pieces to one of the most successful leadout trains in history, helping Mark Cavendish to some of his biggest wins, a road captain and godfather of the Gruppetto. But much more than that, he's one of the nicest guys in the bunch. He's now a Bora Hansgrohe assistant DS and Eurosport GCN commentator. Please give a warm welcome to our friend, Bernie Eisel. Okay, everyone, a big Bobby and Jens welcome to Mr. Bernie Eisel. Bernie, how you doing, buddy? Thanks a lot for having me on the show. I waited for a couple of years now. Bobby, you promised me a few times. You know, uh, I, I have to blame it. You know, I'm getting older. You know, you're only 42. I'm 52. Memory starts to go. You know, all these new hot shots, men and women, juniors um, come into the scene. But, man, I have to just say... It was so much fun with you. You know, you were one of the guys that spoke perfect English back in the day. You had an amazing career. You're moving on to different things. But before we try to unpack the last few decades of memories and funny stories, hopefully, uh, where are you at the moment and what are you up to? I mean, if you look in the background here, you can see Jens and I have a similar background. So he's just next to me here. He got his own chair. And now we are both actually commentating now for Eurosport, GCN, and the, the Giro. So living the dream, talking about, I mean, Jens and I, we both like to talk. And we talk about, about our favorite thing, and that's cycling. Well, I, I have to say I'm happy that you guys aren't sharing a room because that was like, that was my space. I was Jens's roommate, you know, like I don't need anybody moving in on my territory after all these years, you know? Bobby's wife, Angela, still, when she talks about me, she goes, hey, Bobby, how's your other wife doing? Or how's your second wife doing? So Bobby's wife, Angela, still refers to me as Bobby's second wife. That's how much time we actually did spend together in racing, training camps, and in hotels. Yeah, um, could have done worse, you know? Could have had a worse best friend, you know what I'm saying? Um, Hey, listen, I know we're going to have some amazing stories here, but one of the, like my first memories of, of you was when you, were, when you started, you were on that, that iconic MAPE team and you were the young, uh, you know, part of that young, I guess they called it the development team. And going back and pulling up the names that were on that team when I was doing a little bit of research, you know, the photos, that was like a who's who of cycling you know you you guys were young like you and michael rogers and conchalara um uh a couple other guys that i can't remember right now but then all the icons popped up on that on that screen what was it like starting your career on a team like mape back in the day to be honest it's like a million stories in only that question but uh, when i look back i mean people potato was back there uh, in the team, Alan Davies, uh, so many, Petrov, and name it all of them. It was more like uh, I was the third youngest rider in history to sign a pro contract. And be before me, only being younger, a few months was uh, Fabian Cancellaro and Pozzato. That wasn't very common back in the day. That we're talking about 99 when I signed. People even signed in 98. So it was like we were kids turning pro. And... I caught a last moment, uh, last call, like literally I was the f 
Squinty, the owner, he's had 40 riders. That's the maximum. That's how big Mapai was. And I was the 41st rider. And he's like, no way, no way. Then they convinced him. And I got a, a literally the last call. And still remember when I rolled up to the parking place and I was partly Taffy, Freire, Bettini. It was just incredible. You just, uh, I'm not really a shy person. I was very shy that moment. So maybe, um, Bernie, tell us, like, how did you get there? I mean, you're born in Austria, you lived in Austria. How did you pick up cycling? Who helped you to become a better rider? How did you get to that very first contract with that legendary Mappe team? Wasn't really a big roller coaster till really signing that contract. But when I look back, <clears throat> sorry, I was. My brother is nine years older, so he was always a rider and raced professionally, nearly won two of Austria. So he was always my mentor. He was always the idol I looked up. Later on, it was like a guy. Mm, yeah, it, it was Miguel Indurain, but before it was my brother. A guy I always followed, tried to follow his footsteps. And my coach uh, in the younger years gave everything. In this got other guys on the line and uh, they looked okay Italian teams started being interested in me in the junior year so and I got this offer to raise as a junior rider in the region Veneto that's uh, around Venice and Treviso the owner like where Pinarello is from and so I said yes when can I start and so I made this deal over the phone and everything and then I went to my mom is like look I'm going to race in Italy next year. And she's like, no. I'm like, yeah, pretty, pretty sure, because I already told them I'm going to do that. And I was still in school and everything, and we managed to handle it. And it was only when... So I had this progress over the Italian scene, racing against uh, Alessandro Balan and always uh, against people who taught in the junior years, Cangellara. This helped me a lot to be always mentioned in the, in the results with these guys. And then it, it was a, a tough moment because when I was under 23, the first year I finished school and then I ripped my fork apart and it was like the moment where I retired. It was like, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. Spent a week in hospital and reading what, what I could study, just finished school. So what's gonna, what are I going to do next? And watching the Tour de France on television, I was like, no, nah, I'm not done with this. And three months later, I signed a pro contract after the World Championships in uh, Ploué. Bernie, real quick, because I was talking with Jens about this before the start. How many languages do you speak? I, I speak four, kind of. Uh, I mean, French is, is in there, but a four, I'm pretty fluent. And it's Italian, German, English. And yeah, my French. I can follow easy conversation. I can watch a movie. But I, don't, I won't talk in French about politics or something that's like not as far I can, I can get my fridge. But where, where did you learn English? Because I remember very early on, like you always were like tractor beam attracted to the guys that spoke English. And for the longest time, I thought you were like Australian or British. Where did you learn? And because I still pick up a little bit of an accent. Uh, definitely. I, honestly, I picked it up on, on, on the street, on the road with the boys and it's like my Italian became much better I had Italian and English in school but I was bad in school literally bad <laughs> and this helped me and w looking back to those years of course 
my it was much easier for me because when I uh, joined Mapai Quick uh, Mapai, I spoke already Italian. I spoke some pretty good English, so I could connect with all the guys and help me also to connect these boys a little bit easier together. And then later on, I think uh, it was when I when I joined uh, FDG Francis de Jeux with Cookie and uh, Miggy Wiggins. This is just when I had to learn English very quick. To have any chance to understand Australian, especially Baden Cook, to follow Cookie in a conversation is it, it, like I, I had to really look into his face and it's like follow his lips and everything and just to get the whole sentence. And Mark, and Mark Cavendish doesn't didn't help much either, to tell you that. And um, now that you talked about uh, FTG, what made you change to that team? New culture, new language, different country. Why didn't you stay in Italy after Mapi? Literally, it was my last straw. Like, no chance to be in any other team. I I did a pretty good season in 2002. That was when Mapai folded at the end. And I had no option, no anything else. And one of my biggest enemies, that was Jimmy Casbert. We never got along. Literally, never in racing we got along. We had pretty much the same job, looking after other guys who were sprinting against each other. And... I finished second in Perry Careers or something, and Baden Cook won the race. And it was L Jimmy Casbeo came up to me at the airport. He's like, "What are you doing next year?" We were talking with hands and uh, hand and feet, and just trying to understand. He spoke only French. I didn't speak a single word French. And at the end, he was like, "Look, I got to talk to Mark Madio, and let's see what we can puzzle together." And it was two days later, Mark Madio called me, and it's like, "We're interested." Man, I, that was one of my questions because I rode for French teams, Jens rode for French teams, but I was never employed by Marc Mario. Um, how was he uh, way back then? Because even these days, I'm like, man, this guy is intense. I mean, y you can't, despite the fact that he loves cycling, you see the passion, but the way that he goes about it sometimes It always had me like, gosh, I wonder what it would have been to ride on that team, especially not being a French rider. It was a dream. It was literally and intended a nice description, a very polite description of Marc Madio, <laughs> Bobby. No, he, he, uh, Marc loves cycling the same way he loves the boys and his team. So he would every time defend his riders. doesn't matter how wrong you are outside in the bubble of Francis de Jeux. He will defend you and protect you, but he will be also very harsh on you if he knows you did something wrong that could do something to the team, to the sponsor. So he's, he's very, very strict on that, but on any other term, he's always there to defend his boys, which I love him and is not easy to handle. That is 100% sure when, he, when it comes to about development of the sport, modern sport. He is a he, he lives in his tradition and I really appreciate that because that's how he grew up and he's, he's defending it. The French Cup, it wouldn't exist without him anymore. So chapeau to Marc Madieu and he, he might be crazy, but I always will remember Marc Madieu and preparing the classics, his speeches before Paris-Roubaix, being, backing up the boys. So he, And 
the best thing with Mark Madeo is if he thought he was smarter, if he told you something, you, you should, you, sh you shouldn't do things. He knew you're going to do it anyway, because you're a young rider, you're dumb, you got to do it. And he knew before. So, but he didn't blame you afterwards. He was just like, I told you, so everything you, you were actually not having in your mind anyway, it, it did happen and he knew it before. And he was never really up, upset with you. He's just, he knew, he knew, he knows cycling. He knows how young riders work and he knew, he knew this is going to happen to them. So Mark was for me, one exceptional person in my, in my career. And I, I still, to be honest, I only speak French thanks to him because I was in in the first training camp and on day five we had some meetings and I, I could follow the meeting because I raised my arm and asked a question in English and Mark afterwards comes up and he's like, so you, you understand French? I was like, I can puzzle it together. And he's like, okay, cool. That was the last, mo last time he spoke English to me. Mark Mario speaks English. So did you ever had a moment where, I mean, sometimes he's out of the car, banging on the door of the car and go, hey, vas-y, vas-y, mon petit, allez, allez. You know, he goes out of his head in excitement. Did you ever had a moment like that with him where he would encourage you, like totally being off his mind excited? Um, Tortoise West and stuff, when, when he called, he wasn't there with me, but it's like, you can hear his excitement and when he calls you, he's, he's there. I had other moments with him when I was on the other side as a Eurosport reporter. And I had to ask him some questions and you think you're friends. But Mark Madio is still going to do the same thing to me as he's going to do to any reporter. He's just going to stare at you. He's just going to look at you. And he's going to give you those two, three seconds before he's going to give an answer. He just want to see this awkward face. Your reaction is like, is like, think about your question. It was a pretty dumb question. I know you have to ask it, but I make you fuck, I make you awkward now. Nearly swear now. Jeez. Well, you know, now that we know he speaks English, we may have to get him on the podcast. Um, that would be a, a coup, Yenzi. You're friends with the French guys a little bit more than I am these days. But okay, so then you move on to T-Mobile, which became High Road. Uh, you guys had a massive amount of success. When did you meet Mark Cavendish? And tell us a little bit about your relationship. In 2007, I think. I mean, I'm that old now. It's like, it's like uh, uh, even I have to look up my stats on pro cycling stats. So, no, in 2007, uh, I, after 2006 in France's Dijon, uh, I moved on. And it was being Austrian. T-Mobile was a big thing also in Austria. So it, it was for me like the dream coming true, I gonna race for T-Mobile. And gave everything. This is the moment when Mark, uh, Mark Cavendish rocked up on the scene. I still remember first training camp in Mallorca and he was there, an unknown guy from the Isle of Man. And everybody was like, where's he from? He still thinks we were all harsh to him, but he was like also, Mark left his mark in Germany and all the track but the track wasn't that big, uh, such a big thing back in the day. So it was like, he's a rider. Okay. T-Mobile is also big in, in the UK. And that's why we signed him. 
three days later, he started smoking people in the intermediate sprints, like just in training, just doing some effort. And I was like, he's quick. He's can't get up a hill. He can't get over a bridge, but he, oh my God, he's quick. And this went on and he, he, he definitely had a, a, a tough time because uh, we had Andre Kreibel. That rivalry continued. I think if we if you put them together outside the sport back in the day or now, they could have been friends because they had the same understanding, the same drive for for the sport. It was just they collided in the first months of becoming great cyclists. And though, but both I, I try I worked with both of them, and Mark was uh, I think when when it comes to him is. He always says he would scale the price when I convinced him that I'm loyal, I'm a, I'm a friend. Because I was preparing for Paris-Roubaix after Flanders. It was just in between. And I waited for him and it delivered him to the front. I was, I'm not going to bring you to the line because it's too sketchy, that finish line in, in scale the price. I'm not going to be there. Sunday is Paris-Roubaix. I want to be safe and sound there. Delivered him to the front. He won the race and... I think that's when the bounding started a little bit more. Went on to Catalonia and at some point they told me, we're going to bring Mark Cavendish to the tour in that same year. Okay, good for me. And poor fellow, crashed pretty much every single time when it was a sprint and we were like, hmm, we try again tomorrow, we try again tomorrow. But at the end of the day, he was the right thing to do because everybody knew he's what he can do if he gets a straight line and he makes it to the finish. So maybe for me as a non-sprinter and for our listeners, explain us a little bit how it is to have Mark Cavendish behind you and he is calling the shots. Does he like, do you have certain code words or is he just yelling, go faster, go left, go right, move up? How is that going to work? And is that hard to understand because he's behind you, you're doing, you know, 40 miles an hour or 65 kilometers an hour. H how is that going to work out? Because I've never really been in a, in a situation like that. Uh, it changes over the months. It also changes over the years having different lead out trains. I'm never a, be a fan of trains that are very loud because you, everybody else around knows what's going on. A train, normally, if it's working perfectly, it only needs a few short calls. It's like faster, wait, or go. It's like, it is just, and the guys will always look over their shoulders. And Mark Cavendish, or the last guy, the sprinter, never really has to say anything. He, he should only rely on the guys in front of him. They have to do everything. He, the only thing he has to do is don't waste that energy. Don't get in any trouble. Don't overlap the wheel if you overlap it the right way. So you're never in. The key is not to bring him in danger. Uh, that is the, the, the key thing. But in January, February, the first race, you will yell around like it's war. It's crazy. Because you're just trying to mix the team together, get the boys to do what you think is the right thing. You, if you mix a team together in the first week of the tour and the horsepower is not there, you've got to do the same thing. You just yell around, but you're not in the game. You're not on top of the game. We were lucky enough that we've... Um, 
Mick Rogers, Bert Grouch, Tony Martin, we can name it all, uh, George Hinkeby, all those years, we had so much horsepower, we just could rely on them. We, it was like a PlayStation game. We were just like, bring it to the front and we control it. We get to this corner, after the corner we relax again. And Mark did not even have to think a second about it. Later on in the years, it was like more... You, un- you get an understanding if a sprinter is nervous. Because one moment you're too far in the front of the peloton, that can be after like six kilometers racing. And he moved back. Five kilometers later, he's like, oh, we are too far back now. So you start moving up. So you, as a protégé or lead-out guy, you always have to also deal with form and daily feelings of a, of a sprinter, of, even of a, of a captain. It, and sometimes you just can't make it right. You also have a bad day or he has a bad day. So it's, it's, a, it's a learning process. It's being like you, you two, married couple in the room, you know, Yenzi walks into the room and won't shut up. And Bobby, you are like on your hands and knees, but Yenzi still keeps talking. <laughs> well, you know, so you just described what it's like taking care of Mark or whatever sprinter that you were with in the final. But one of the things that I learned about you later was you you mentioned Cab couldn't get over a bridge, right? Like he wasn't the best climber. And and I I noticed that you were like the capo of the gruppetto. Like you knew you seemed to be able to calculate the time and keep Mark or your sprinter nice and calm. You used to keep them motivated, focused, almost like a race coach on the road. And I was just like, man, I thought this lead out guy would be, you know, just, you know, kind of fending for himself. But you fended not only for Mark but like kind of the whole gruppetto. And I remember coming back to you one time during the tour of California when it was basically, we went from Sacramento up to Tahoe and Mark was not on a very good day. And, you know, I'm trying to talk to you. You're just like, don't worry, we got it, we got it. Mark is like, he wouldn't even talk to me, wouldn't even take a Coke. Uh, I'm like, okay, just stay out of his way sort of thing. But what, you know, that, that ability to mold the gruppetto to keep everyone calm how do you learn something like that or who did you learn it from to learn it from i think picking it up from robbie McEwen. i think i mean he's our colleague at eurosport but he was the perfect example <clears throat> in a, in a way because he he would come and trill this gruppetto and just say we got them we're not going to make it we're not going to make it so everybody was just giving everything robbie sat on for 20 for 20 games <laughs> and just made the other guys work so you could you could do both for, for me it was always like uh i wanted to make it easy as possible for everyone involved because i always knew everyone is going to have a hard day when we look at the giro the next uh the first the second the third week the tour is the same the third first week you do not have a crew battle because everybody's just fighting, hanging on as long as he can until he dies, until he gets a flu, whatever, he's coughing. And then he ends up in this gruppetto and you told him 10 days to keep it easy and stay together because everybody has a bad moment. Everybody has a, whatever, a crash and he's not feeling good for two days. So you always have to look for the weakest link in this chain. 
And for me, it was always, Mark, don't overdo it at the beginning. So we got dropped before even a single rider in the group battle got dropped, but it's, it was more to get it in his head, not to accept, but to live with the haters talking about him being dropped the first guy. But in the end, it's just the, what a Filippo Ganna or a guy would do. He's going to pace himself up this climb, so he's not going to kill himself in that moment because he's gonna, he, know, he knows he's going to need it later. And that, that was the only, the only thinking behind it. It wasn't, hadn't to do anything with Watts or something. I, I, I still, I'm in Bora Hans Groh as a, as a DX. I do not have a single idea about Watts per kilogram or anything. Like I, I still cannot. I was like, I know my boys and I know when the coaches tell me this is what they have, what they are capable of doing. Then I can work with it. And it was the same with, with Mark. I knew what he can hold for a certain moment. And I just had to look in his face and knew it's like, if we walk the next 20 minutes, it doesn't matter. We're still going to make it. Now we talked about you taking care of the group pedal of Mark Cavendish. Um, <clears throat> Remember the Tour de France 2009, where I had a terrible crash. We started in Côte de Pérezot. I crashed on a downhill, went for about, whatever, 20 miles, 15 miles, whatever it was, on a kid's bike. Get my normal bike back. Caught you guys. I remember you looked at me, go, oh, Jensi, you look like shit. You know, how you want to keep going? And then you guys saved my day. It was Mark Cavendish. You, of course, were there for Mark. Bert Rupsch and Mark Rancho. And you helped me to reach that Gruppetto and stay in the race and within the time. How was it for you from your point of view? I mean, you could have dropped me any second in that descent, but you waited for me. You made your own life harder, risking elimination because of a time cut, because you waited for me. And I'm forever grateful for that moment. And to our viewers, one of the biggest displays of fairness and sportsmanship I have ever experienced. But how was it from your side? <laughs> Thanks, Yenzi. Now, I think probably I work like this. Probably this is, uh, I discussed it with many guys. Because you, I was the number one sprinter in Francis Dejeu at a certain time. And also at T-Mobile when I joined. And there were people faster than me. I could have fought it. It's like, like no, I'm better. I gonna give a little bit more. You fail and you end up somewhere else. I realized later on it's like shit. I get more out of myself if I help other people. I'm that's my problem, my personality, just to turn myself inside out more if I help somebody else than I, if I do it for myself. And this helped me always to get through all this. And I had many years when I was like I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. But there was always somebody around who was like, stick with me. We'll bring you home. We're going to finish this together. Uh, David Miller in the tour. The two of us dropped in this. I uh, can't remember the year. My memory is not that good. But it was like the, the first time we did Alto S with that super short uh, stage and uh, over Telegraph, Gallivier. And David Miller and I stayed together. He could have dropped me like 20 times. And our sports directors nearly got crazy because David was like, no, I'm going to stay with Bernie. It's one, one day to go. Paris is around the corner. I bring him home. And everybody was like, so it, it is, it will always happen. There's always someone. And for me, it was always a blessing and to seeing grateful riders. And 
not an apology, but when riders came up in the third week of a ground tour and they're like, sorry for the first week, should have trusted you. You, you can, you can do the calculation, but this is always that the hardest one to convince everybody in this group battle, it's all fine. We're going to make it because they are nervous. Sports directors are nervous. Sports directors get even more nervous. Some sports directors in my career, they could not even calculate the, the, the max time, not in my team, but this caused, caused even more tension in the group battle when some other team sports directors calculated something different than we calculated. We'll be back after this short break. Now back to our chat with Bernie. You know, to bestow another compliment on you, um, if there's a picture in the dictionary next to the term road captain, it, there's a picture of you. And you've just explained a lot of the reason why you were so well respected as a road captain. A road captain is in the front, like you mentioned, doing the leadouts. It's, you know, keeping everyone calm in the gruppetto. But I also remember in the bus during the meetings, you were very, very active. And if our listeners haven't picked up on it quite yet, Bernie is, a, even though he said he wasn't good in school, he is extremely intelligent. So that, that term road captain, um, explain to our listeners what that really means and the duties that entails that is sometimes, well, very much unwritten, right? Because you're kind of one of a kind that can do all that stuff. But road captain, tell us a little bit about your feelings and your definition of how you were an effective road captain. I still blame Team Sky for that road captain name because I think every rider I did the Tour de France with in 2012 and Bradley Wiggins won, and everybody had a role. He's a climber, he's a, he's the sprinter, he's the leader. And then it came to my name, it was like, hmm, he can't climb, he can't sprint. So what are we going to call him? And it, 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 it stick. For me, it was always like, uh, of course, it was a, an honor to be called the, the road captain. And I think it also is a good term because it helps always that guy to live up the experience or to go over that, uh, what they expect from him. So for me, it, it definitely made me a better rider because you start even thinking more what is the what is going on. For me, it was like a natural role in some way because I am vocal. I speak uh, spoke the four languages. So I always knew what's happening in the peloton. So that's also the role of a road captain. You, you just cruise around and try to figure out what our other teams are planning. Then you a bit of a link between the sports director in the in the team car and the riders. So your communication, what is happening, overlooking the race, who is going in a break, who is more active uh, at the beginning of the race, who is having a bad day probably, who is struggling, who's ha having a puncture. So that info goes straight to the team car, and that's a road captain's role. And sometimes, yeah, you have to call the shots and. Uh, for me, it was all at some point I was like I had enough, let's say, experience and also, uh, yeah, trusting myself. I was like, look, we, we are eight guys here, we're seven guys here. All six of us can have a, a thought about the race, can have a meaning, but I call the shots because it's nothing worse than you end up the end the race, and nobody was really responsible. 
And after the race, everybody's right anyway. So you have to live with a decision you make in this in this second, and may it be wrong. It's only a bike race at the end of the uh, end of the day, and you still can make it up. If you make a wrong decision, what does it mean? You still have to ride a little bit harder, but you have to make a decision in that moment because the team car television never works, race radio never works. So every TV viewer, so if you ever wonder. In television, you see actually more than a sports direct in the team cup, who should actually overlook the race. So, um, did you ever had a moment where the team car goes, uh, yeah, on that yellow house on the front, you turn left and you go full gas, or you attack on a climb, or you do this, and then you had to go back to the team car, um, sorry, that's bullshit, this is not going to work, it's headwind, the guys are not feeling right, another team is going to do this and this. Did you ever had to explain the team car, you're far behind? And this is not going to work because I'm out here in reality. You ever had moments like that? Um, not many times, to be honest. And cycling wasn't that aggressive as it is now. Nowadays, it is a little bit more. And back in the day, you wouldn't have all those info. So there was a little bit more trust in the team car too. Because it was about knowledge about regions sports directors that did this race probably 20 times and he has a feeling because he he remembers 15 years ago something similar happened here so that was uh different to nowadays i mean i raced till 2019 but i'm talking the the high of my career google street maps whatever you would call it didn't really work as that uh, weather forecast the uh, wind forecast wasn't that good recon cars wasn't really a big thing yet so you had to trust especially in the small races and that's why we never really had big discussions sometimes yeah you, you discuss things and but i was always also smart enough to say look sports director calls a shot we follow we can discuss it but i mean that's why he's the sports director there's a plan behind it and he discussed it with his colleagues we It's not about following instructions, but there, there's a plan behind it. And luckily, uh, all those years, it's Rolf Aldak, Brian Holm, so many great sports directors I, I worked with, and Stephen De Jong, Bobby. I mean, we are we are good we are good fun. It's like, and it was always a different approach because you you can't compare one sports director with the other one. Because one comes from a GC background, Dan Charling uh, background. The other one is a sprinter classic guy. So, but if you combine all this and you know, if same role as I'm now, if I have to go to a very hilly, very mountainous uh, race, I prepare uh, 20 times more than I would do for a flat stage because I have no idea. So I can't do that wrong. Well, Before we get to your new role, um, like you said, you you retired at the end of 2019, so you dodged the the pandemic year, which seemed to be you know terrible, and started doing work for Eurosport and GCN. Um, many of you guys, Jens, Robbie, Christian, Nicholas, like I mean, there, there's an endless list of of you know ex pro riders that are commentating, but. What does it feel like commentating the races instead of racing them? 
I never thought there's interest because I had plans after my career. I wasn't done with cycling and I, I had this thing in my head. I want to do 20 years. I did 19. So there was a, a regret I had in my head. I want to do this 20th year. Didn't happen. And then both offers came in and I was like, hang on. I give it a go. And there's also doing Meet the Legends, which uh, I also did with Yenzi, one episode of like a 45-minute documentary. I really enjoyed that because it's, it's not that I felt like a journalist, but all this research, it was also the pandemic year of the Giro. So we, we showed 21, the most uh, epic 21 stages of the Giro. So I started digging into old footage and I absolutely loved it commentary was for me i always tried and also asking questions like never attack those riders never of course it's like you can say hi oh, today you guys had a bit of a bit of an easier day but also cutting the edge there and like saying but that was some tricky tricky corners there was some tricky moments in 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 the stage and we know tomorrow is going to be a tough one. So giving them the understanding, you follow the race. Riders are very, very <laughs> delicate in the questions you ask or also how you talk about them. I remember when I did some after-finish interviews at the Tour Down Under, I, I, I had a plan of, okay, does that person I'm going to interview speak proper English, right? If that person speaks only little English, I would answer an easier question where you just would go yes that was good yes no you know if it's an english-speaking person you could ask a different question did you have thoughts like that as well when you approach a writer because you don't want to make the writer look stupid but you also don't want to get the writer get mad at you and make you look stupid right and definitely also like uh, not giving him the answer in in, in that question or like uh um <laughs> the best one is like oh, a very open question that was always for me I give them the ground to talk whatever they want to talk about because then I know okay he is kind of programmed by his press agent he, he gives me that angle I don't I don't need anyway and then I'm waiting for the second question but I would never be really digging for the for the deep story it's more for me, it was only one thing. I always talk to the riders 10 seconds before I ask the first interview question, see their reaction, how they feel, if they look tired. And I, uh, I started a few, few, few questions actually when I looked at the rider and it's like, mate, you look shit. <laughs> how are you feeling? And he's like, I do. I'm on my hands and knees. So you, you get him. It's like, the same is like you look very happy today. It's like, what's happening? Oh, we had a good, good race yesterday, and so they, it's it's a flow. They just keep on talking and just and but when you also catch them and they, you know, they are not on at the best. It's just it's honest. It's just a a, a very honest question. I think the best episode was with Dan Martin, and. He didn't have his best day. I don't remember the question, but it was one of those questions you have to ask. And it was, I had to ask this question. It was a very journalistic question. And I remember Dan Martin looked in my face and he's like, 
mate, you retired eight months ago and you asked me this question. It, it was, it did not even have to say anything. I could see it in his face. And it is like, it, it was, it was quite a funny moment for me. I was like, I kind of regretted it still. Well, one thing that's very clear to me is uh, I'm a commentator in my own house on my own couch. You know, there's no live feed, but my wife walks in and goes, who are you talking to? But the one major thing, and you would thought after all these years that, oh, you know, I used to do that. But I am absolute in awe of what the riders are doing these days. I am absolute in awe that I was actually ever a part of that because I'm sitting there on pins and needles and like she'll walk in and she'll be like, oh, now you know why I started smoking every year during the Tour de France because I was so stressed watching you on TV. Like, why are you so stressed? I'm like, I just don't want these guys to crash. I don't want, you know, it's not an easy sport and it just seems like it's gotten harder and harder. But moving into the DS car now, um, what are the differences between when you were riding at the beginning, middle, and end of your career and now, uh, both from a communication standpoint with the riders and then a technical standpoint from all the little uh, recon and technical presentations that you guys have to do during the, you know, at this, at the, uh, in the bus at the start? Racing for teams guy like we did, Bobby, is they got it to the next level. It, it was just from preparing a race, performance-wise, and executing a plan, this is Team Sky. Everybody picked it up and started doing the same thing. Everybody who left Team Sky went to another team, went on, and this is how I think how it started. I don't blame them because it got the, the sport to this professional level we are now. It's no time no chance to jeopardize the race because you didn't have the time or you didn't have the willpower to prepare this race. So every single day, there's a PowerPoint presentation about you fly over this of this course every single stage. You find every speed bump, every roundabout, every traffic to lighting you have to find before. Because I honestly, I could not be in a car relaxed. If I go from roundabout to roundabout, speed bump, and I, ha- I didn't have it on my, on my Wii U's Veloview, I didn't have it on my, on my app informing the riders what is coming up next. It would freak me out. It's like I would just play catch up and would just get, it would drive me crazy. Probably I'm professionalist or something, crazy bit of like, in that moment but it, it, it got to this moment you know the gradient of every climb you know, have a countdown when those climbs start and then having all this information now comes the, the trickiest part how to use your riders and how much info is needed in that moment because if you tell them everything even in the meeting you give them 10 scenarios you can't be wrong because at the end of the, end of the day you're going to say Ah, I told you it could happen. Yeah, but he also told me nine other scenarios which could happen. So, well done, mate. And the same is if if you keep talking, I'd still, the riders already know I talk quite a lot, but it's a different thing if you, if I commentate on the race or I'm the sports director in, in, in the race. 
So at some point you have to realize, okay, they are quite relaxed now, they're just strolling around. But in 10 cases this climb with a tricky downhill before whatever, then you have to wake up is like, guys, okay, finish the talk with your mates, we move on. We have to be at the front, we have to be ready again. So now you started working as a, as a journalist or as a commentator with GCN and Eurosport and you did spend quite some time on a motorbike. Um, and starting from next week, Tuesday, I will be on a motorbike. You got any life-saving tips for me? What do I do? What do I not do? Can I talk to the riders from the motorbike and just yell at them, hey, how's going over there? Or is that not allowed? If you're Bradley Wiggins, everything is allowed. So I, I, would, I would risk it. I like the riders, the riders are, they, may, they might be in the towel, but they always like to have a good comment from the side and just loosen up their concentration. And uh, for me, is I think it's also where cycling, where it lives up from and not having everything pro, just having something that is wasn't planned. The other, for me, the, the, First thing I recommend you is like, don't go to motorbike, Inti. <laughs> Didn't somebody tell you it's dangerous? I know, I know. And I think I actually got to, re I got to replace a certain Austrian guy who said, you know what? I'm 42 years old. I got family. I got kids at home. I don't want to do this anymore. So now I got to replace this certain Austrian ex-bike rider. Would you know who that was that put me into this situation, Bernie? I did it a week and I remember the stage in Tinia. It was like, oh my goodness, it was cold. Raining all day, sitting on this motorbike, trusting the guy in front of you. And it's like, this motorbike is quite heavy, especially with you on it. But it, it is good fun, they said. Alrighty, fingers crossed I stay safe. I got my good old army boots to stay warm and dry and safe. And fingers crossed. Well, I, uh, I guess I'll be a little bit more nervous watching the, the middle week of the Giro, knowing that you're on the back of the bike. But Bernie, you, you mentioned, you know, that you've got that cue sheet and you want to know everything and you want to ev communicate everything to the riders, kind of like that co-pilot, you know, in, for a rally driver. Um, but what's going on? Like, what if suddenly... The UCI gets their ways and race radios are not longer a, a part of the sport. Um, does that make your job easier? Does that make your job harder? Do you, do you support that? Do you not support that? Um, I always loved the race radio. Uh, not like I would always listen, to, you know, back then it was just the important parts, right? Like, or if somebody stopped for a pee or if there was a crash. But now if, if it's kind of like this moving commentary, And then all of a sudden that's not there. Um, how will that go over in the Peloton? I would quit, honestly, because then you don't need a sports uh, cars anymore. Then you can have also 20 official cars there with the same equipment and just go on there. And we know racing scenes that do a similar thing. Everybody race on the same car with the same info. They're not very exciting. It's like it was a racing series. Formula One is still the most exciting one. And those insights, those fights, uh, who is better, who has better prepared, those those are the stories that the sport lifts off. At the same time, we're talking about a, 
a 20 to probably a 50 million euro budget budget per team their investment is that heavy into a sport into certain riders so safety of the riders programming this sport should be priority number one because that's why sponsors invest that money to become the number one that's that is for me like why every sport in a certain way is watched and so interesting and it shouldn't be jeopardized by, by some rules that don't help anyone because we have seen it if you don't have radios okay what is the first thing i'm going to say to my my team okay smallest group up the road as possible free riders most likely and we don't give them more than two minutes on any stroll around every day with a break of free riders two minutes in front and easy to control you always know what is happening who is in front and at the end uh yeah final spread up the climb or the finish line so it's i mean we're in the 21st century so i think artificial intelligence could take over race commentary and we're talking about the band race radius so it's just it is stupid for me it's absolutely stupid well and um, we all ex-bike riders we have raced with team radios to reveal that myth to our listeners and to the world any of us have we ever heard the words of the sport director hey let's make this race boring and shit for the viewers let's destroy the race no never ever it is not the radios that make the race more controlled or sometimes um, uh, maybe not as exciting for the viewers. It is the racing, and just like you said, Bernie, it is the investment of the sponsors. You want to protect their investment. So yes, I'm fully behind you here. We keep the race radios, mainly for the rider safety, of course, right? Rider safety, but also a certain info is just, it, it is needed because you still can have a little influence. It's a little, it's tiny. If we look at the Tour de France, it's a fraction of, what the sports director can literally add to this race. Like, because everybody has the same info. So you have to be very precise in how to change the outcome of the race. And this is the work of the sports director to find that little, little, yeah, corner, whatever it is, junction, uh, road, road divider, where whatever it is, road surface, to change the outcome of the race. But <laughs> honestly, when you're in the race car, like I said, every viewer on television has more info about the race. He can use also two or three screens at home. He can use his phone and he knows what's going on. So sometimes the calls you have to make in the race are like an estimation. Because you literally have an idea that could be one guy in the first group of mine and I probably have three guys in the second group. So how am I going to change that? But it's an estimation. You're just hoping for it because you don't see it and you don't have any info. One of the funniest things I remember is when the breakaway would establish itself and the numbers would come over the race radio and we'd be writing down the numbers and trying to figure out what team they were on and stuff. That seemed pretty archaic. Um, hopefully there's a better way of doing it now. But like, what is the coolest like technical advancement that you've seen in the car that you know you, you didn't know of as a rider or that maybe you know the, the teams that you were riding for didn't have is there any new like 
cool thing because right now that car does not look like a normal car. It looks like a cockpit of a plane with a million different things and pads of paper and iPads and phones and whatnot. But is there one specific like really cool gadget that you that you like the most? Uh, I mean, it, it's definitely Velovue. I mean, this is a new thing because uh, you you have your route on it and you can set certain icons with a countdown. It could be a, where you put your feeding zones, where you have like a traffic divider, where you have a tunnel, it's an underpass, it's a roundabout, you go to the left and everything literally has an icon for it. And you can follow the race simultaneously. And you know, in certain races also, you can have an update where the riders are. So you kind of have a view also where the riders are on those maps or on this map and also your stuff because if you have a feeding plant you also would see your your mechanic your physio somebody who's just for there for feeding you can see him on the side of the of the of the road on this map it's just a small tot with his name so you know you know he's there you don't have to contact him by to call him to text him or something you just know he's at the spot where I told him or we plan to have this feeding. So that helps already a lot. And the, and the other time is, I mean, whoever tried to watch uh, football, baseball, whatever he prefers while driving and every two minutes is just on refresh, refresh, refresh because the picture just stops. And it's literally the same what we're trying when we're in the car to watch, uh, to watch the race in the car is like... You just go channel up, channel down, refresh, and it's just at the end you just give up. It's like no, no signal in the mountains. So then let me ask you about the other side of that. If there's one piece of technical, whatever device you could kick out of cycling, would you have an idea of what you would like to disappear from cycling? Whatever power meters, sunglasses, helmets, <laughs> white handlebar tape, whatever, anything. I think what I, I would do is also I would have in every race uh, a certain minimum of TV cameras and motorbike distance. That is brings one thing in place that is amazing technology in cameras. So heavyweight cinema cameras and you can stay also 100 meters away from the peloton and you still can recognize a rider. And not having this this thing because if I watch the tour, I know there's a distance of 50 meters from the motorbike because the camera he's holding is eight kilos heavy. It's a monster thing. In other races, when I see the same image, I know this guy is like 12 meters in front of him. Is pretty much the rider is sitting on the back of this motorbike. So this is the first thing I would say. Okay, there has to be this minimum of distance. He can't go any closer to this. Otherwise, uh, the signal breaks up. Something like that I, I would implement. Let's say, the moment he gets too close to the rhinos, it goes dark on the screen. And then they will learn from, from uh, and not interfering with race outcomes. And I'm not going to mention here, I'm still going to race, but uh, <laughs> other stuff. You know, maybe, maybe a little dog collar, you know, the little shock collar. You know, before the image goes out, it gives you that little, you know, z z z you're getting close here, bud. And then if you violate that, then boom, it's over. Well, 
Hey, Bernie, it has been an absolute pleasure catching up with you. I know you guys got to get up and do the same old thing tomorrow there in the Giro. So thank you so much for your stories, for what you've done for the sport, for the memories that I have of, of riding and, and working with you. And yeah, just have a, a great continuation of the Giro and thanks for coming on the, the podcast. I have to say thank you. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks, TNT. And I hope we all catch up at some point. Bobby, it was always a pleasure really to work with you and also great pleasure for this podcast today. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thank you to Bernie for being our guest. Thanks for listening and please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Velo News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne and this episode was edited by Tim Moza. Bernie was part of a cycling double act. Apart from us, who was your favorite pair in the peloton? Let us know by messaging us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens. <laughs>